Hello, and welcome to Shakespeare, the official Lion Face Productions podcast where we talk about Shakespeare. My name is Chase, your mostly quiet producer. Today, we talk about the language and adaptations of A Midsummer Night's Dream. If you live in Northwest Ohio and would like to get involved with our organization, be it to act, direct, or anything else theater-related, please reach out to us at facebook.com slash lionfaceproductions. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Shakespeare and at ShakespearePod on Twitter. And now, on with the show. Do you remember I mean, that's time? a decent reason. We had a snake in our house in Virginia, and you weren't there to deal with it. It's true. I was at work. What'd you do? Snakes are fine. No, we couldn't. It was up on the third floor landing where it was dark, and they have diamondbacks in Virginia. Okay, yeah. Which are venomous. I know. And that was for the listeners, in case they didn't know. Chase isn't recording this yet. Uh, yeah, he is. He's uh, been recording. Uh, I know my husband. <laughs> As soon as um, we start talking about interesting things, <laughs> Chase starts recording. And so I I went, I saw it at the top of the stairs, and I went, okay, okay, there's a snake up here. I'm a grown woman, I can How handle this. How get into the house? I don't ask myself that question, Beth. I'm a grown-ass <laughs> woman, I can deal with a snake. So I went downstairs to get the gardening gloves my, so that, that I could have gloves on, and I was like, I've seen enough people, I know you got to hold it right behind the head. I can do this. I was psyching myself up for it. And then it started to, like, move towards our bedroom. And so I tried to, like, corral it in the opposite direction, and it didn't like that. And it zipped into the linen closet. And it was dark because I didn't want to turn the light on. So I couldn't see what kind of snake it was. I didn't get a good enough look at it. I was like, I'm not going to go poking around in the linen closet for a snake that probably isn't venomous, but might be venomous. (laughs) And Chase wasn't there. I think I sent him lots of all caps text messages going, there's a snake in the house. No, it didn't have a rattle. It wasn't a rattlesnake. Okay, well. Well, if it was a diamondback, it would have. But it was like three feet long. Yeah, but you said you you were talking about diamondbacks, and diamondback would have had a rattle. Well, okay, I don't know a lot about snakes. I just know there was a snake in my house, and it's not where snakes are supposed to be. That's a good point. I mean, if you told me, if you just said it was a water moccasin, I mean, then it wouldn't have a rattle. Or a Might have been. We were right by the river. I don't, I'm pretty sure it was just a rock. There's snake. no way it was a, there was no way it was a water moccasin. It, it was most likely harmless, but it still could have bitten me, and I didn't want any part of that, so. That's fair, that's fair. It was me and two other girls in the house, and none of us were willing to go do battle with a snake. And so know. you got in trouble because you were at work. <laughs> yep. I was taking pictures of kids. So we just... But you were... You were equally awkward. venomous and poisonous. <laughs> Instantly vilified because you weren't there to save them the, from the snake. The story continues. Well, no, we just called around until we found somebody who sent her stepfather over to deal with the snake for yeah. us. And we're like, you can mock us as much as you want. That's fine. Just get the snake out of my house. We had a... And he's like, it's just a garter snake. It's well, not. It was not a garter snake. It was like three and a half feet long. Yeah, no, a so, garter snake can grow to be that large. Well, and he he came over, as I have heard the story <laughs> told, he came over and quote unquote knocked the snake out and then threw it into like somebody else's garden across the road. The so he killed the snake yeah. and chucked killed, it across the street. No, he killed the, the snake. But we told people that, well, certain people who cared about the snake's full being, we told him he just stunned it. It's like, no, he killed it, and I'm fine with that. Um, no, he put it in the brush across the, the street. It wasn't anybody's yard. It's fine. Yeah. It'll go in the, that that bush will get to eat snake. As mm-hmm. it, it's fine. 
The circle of life. We had a crow get into the house on clots in the basement. Like Jesse and Melissa Coza were in town and they went downstairs to go to bed and Jesse comes running back upstairs. There's a crow! <laughs> and this like big black bird comes up out of the basement. Slapping all over this. Slapping all over the living room and Chris and Jesse are like shoving it out the back door. I'm like, <laughs> To this day, I have no idea how this huge bird got first into the house and second in the basement. I'm like, oh. Somebody goes, hey, you know maybe it came in through the drying vent. I'm like, it was you know, a huge hey, you know bird. What? Maybe you dreamed it. If these things but offended. <laughs> if you, if you probably, dreamed it's it. Amended. If you dreamed it, maybe it would make I, sense as a segue I, into the play that we're it covering could, tonight. But I'm not going with that one. Um, instead, are you going to make your own segue? I am. So I think of these it. These are always good. I think of it as the battle crow, as Morgan Le Fay. And speaking of fairies, oh. <laughs> oh, God, that was that was way worse. Thank you. I had to stretch to get one. You more. did. You stretched like a motherfucker to get. I that brought in. out the battle crow. I love. I actually, I do love the Morgan, but. Um, we're not talking about the Morgan the night. Let's talk about the King and the Queen. We are talking about a Midsummer Night's Dream. We are. My, this name's, is, my name's Beth Roars. I'm Cassie Greenley. I am Ryan Hapill. And I'm Chase Greenley. And this is The Shakespeare Podcast, episode 18. Correct. 18 wow. episodes. We're almost to a year. You realize that, right? We're getting closer. We are getting closer. Uh, six once we, more or three more episodes. Once three we more hit recordings. once we hit twenty six episodes. Twenty six makes a year. There are fifty two. There are fifty two weeks in a year, which means twenty six is fifty two is half of it. I went with twenty six recordings. We have twenty six episodes. Will make a year. Plausible. Twenty six episodes makes a year. On our recording schedule and on our release schedule, we release two I, every two weeks. You do not have to tell me anymore. I believe you. I've had enough Shakespeare's. Shakespeare's. <laughs> Shakespeare, that I already got something wrong on my Kevin Klein post from the last podcast, so we're good. Mm. We're good. Shakespeare. All right. So, I mean, we he talked can- about... Dan- leave the Greenlee house drunk. We don't. But we are, uh, yeah, we are on episode 18, and we're talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream um, by Billy Shakes. Just one. Just one Midsummer Night's Dream. One Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, you know what? It's two. Well, no, you were arguing that it was four, and it really is not. Look. Cass, okay, you have to be quiet. For this conversation. Oh, because logic has to happen. Logic has to happen, so you have to be quiet. If I no, if Cassie. I talk, logic will happen. Sure. Cassie. Yes. Yeah. How many days is it to the wedding? Can you look that up for me real quick? Tell me how I many will, days. I will look this up for you. Is it? I think. Oh, do we need a pizza break? I think we need to pause for station uh, identification. We're to pause for station identification. Enjoy player to land.
We're talking about a Midsummer Night's Dream and trying to prove me wrong, I think. Uh, yeah, so the opening well, lines... Of course it's your favorite thing to do. The opening lines of the show are, Now, Fair Hippolyta, our nuptial hour drop... Dra- uh. She only had wrong. one drink. She Has did. She only had one drink. Two. Okay, two, two. But now, she still can't <laughs> Shakespeare, apparently. Well, it's the phrase, our nuptial hour draws on apace. I don't know if I can say that. You did. You can't say it sober? Um, I'm sober. Four happy days bring in another moon. Four happy... Yes, okay, it says four happy days there, but there are not four days covered in in the span of the play. The span of the play takes place overnight, and then the wedding happens immediately after. I'll give you three sleeps, but four days. No. The timeline of this play is wacky. That is something that I noticed when I was reading it, because here it says... It four says days four days, but four days do the weddings, not pass. But they're only in the forest overnight, so when do they go into the forest? It's it's not clearly defined. It's not four days. It is, it is way less than four days. Then so I'm sorry, Beth, it- you didn't get to prove me wrong. I didn't get to. Shakespeare got to. No. Shakespeare also <laughs> didn't prove me wrong. Shakespeare proved himself wrong when he said four days at the beginning of the play. That was a lie. Maury said that was a lie. Are you are you bringing Maury Povich into this? Maury Povich the son looked at the play and the said four days. That was a lie. Lie detector said that was a lie. Anyway, either way, anyway, textually, it says four days. It says four days, but it does not right. take four days. But, Cassie, would you say that this is the least important part? Yes, I would. Okay. But we're also talking about a romance, which is three days or less and away. And I... Well, and this is a romance. My point is, I think that sticking to the stickler side of three days... I think that that is the least important part of it being a romance. No, but all of the romances do take place in three days or less. This is a romance. And maybe this was Shakespeare sticking up his middle finger with one line. Like, ah, it's not three days. Four days. That does sound like the thing that Shakespeare would do. Since that could be. There's could a lot be. of times that he throws and pokes fun at theater conventions mm-hmm. within the play. So Well, the romance was based off of Shakespeare's timeline in the first book. It's true. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway. Either way. But either way, no, this place takes place over a short period of time. Yes. Yes. The and ends in of the action. Ways. Yeah. The bulk of the action takes place in one night. In one night. Yeah. One midsummer night. One midsummer night. A midsummer night's Dream, so where do we want to start? There are three plays. I want to talk about language. You want to talk about language first? We can talk about language. I want to talk about how language is used in this play. Let's go for it, Mrs. Greenlee. So, by and large, when Shakespeare writes, he writes in verse. But he writes in blank verse, which means it doesn't rhyme. And he writes primarily in iambic pentameter. Yes. When characters speak in verse versus when they speak in prose, it's almost always significant. There's almost always a reason why these people are speaking in prose and these people are speaking why in verse. Why it switches, yes. Why it switches is almost always important. No, in, in no play really is that clearer than in Midsummer Night's Dream. I love the way that he uses language because when he changes how the verse is spoken and who is speaking, 
It's always very clearly significant. So the fairies, for example, they speak in verse, but they don't speak in iambic pentameter. They speak primarily in iambic tetrameter. Yes. So they speak in four beats. So if we shadows have offended, think but this, this and all, all is mended. mended. Which gives it a, it's, that's a much more like poemy feel. Exactly. And so it sets the fairies apart automatically from the humans, just in the way that they talk, that they're more sing-songy, they're more, you know, they have more of a poem feel. Iambic pentameter is used for blank verse because it most closely mimics human speech. That all being said, the mechanicals speak primarily in prose. Yes. Uh, because they are the lower class. That... I wiped up Reese with it. Oh, well, then never mind. I won't let you use it as a bookmark. For those who didn't see, <laughs> Ryan just tried to use a paper towel as a bookmark, and that was the wrong paper towel to use as a bookmark. I cleaned up pizza stuff from it, and it is my book. It was very good pizza. So, I yeah, we don't, yeah, no, I agree with that. I didn't realize that was a pizza stuff. Here, let me have uh, one of these clean napkins. Yes, you may use one of the clean napkins. But, so the, the mechanical speaking prose... The lovers and Theseus and Hippolyta, they speak in verse. But the lovers speak in rhyming verse, yes. which is unusual for Shakespeare. But they are in Acts 1 through 4. They are in Acts 1 through 3, all the hijinks. They are in rhyming verse. After they have their hijinks in the forest in that scene with Theseus and Aegeus, they are no longer speaking in rhyme. Ooh, that's interesting. When they wake up, when they wake up, they are no longer in rhyme. They're still in verse, but they're no longer in rhyme. What are they? An iambic pentameter, but they are no longer in rhyming. rhyming. And that is fascinating to me, and I love it. So, when we look at other Well, it's because prior to that point, they're in the dream. Okay, so they are closely interlinked then with what the fairies are doing. Mm-hmm. Even though the fairies are in tetrameter, as we talked yeah. about. Yeah, and the non-rhyming as well. But it's still the same in Act 1, Scene 1. Yep. They're still in rhyme. And for me, I've always kind of taken that as... In in Act 1, Scene 1, in Act 2, Scene 1, to me, Lysander and Hermia are really play-acting the being-in-love part. Yeah. It's never really been tested, and now her father is testing it, and isn't that so romantic with a capital R? And now they have to run away to the woods. And so they're really, like, overplaying this we are tragic lovers. We're so in love. And you've got Helena, who is, of course, like, pathetically in love with Demetrius. But once they go into the woods, and once all these crazy things happen to them, and their love actually gets tested and settles into something that's a little bit stronger for having been lost and tested, then they start to feel more like real people. Yep. And they lose that rhyming quality. They no longer they no longer have the sing song quality to their yeah, speech. They feel more grounded. <laughs> legitimate and, and yeah. grounded. And yeah. I've always human, thought that was yeah. really fascinating with this. That is interesting. I have not ever noticed that. Put your glasses up for that. That's right, nerd points, Cassie. Nerd points to Cassie. Well, and when we think of his other... The sonnets, mm-hmm. the other times that he writes... The other times he writes in rhyme. Yeah. The sonnets are yeah. all in... I am the container with an A, B, A, B. And they're all rhyming verbs. Yes, it's A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D. 
Was yeah, it's a it's a rhyming when he writes of love, especially when it's intended to be. We should take a look further at feet when we are looking at some. Thank you for showing me your foot. When when we are looking at some of the the breakdowns between these two or between different groupings of it, but that's really interesting because you've got. Three different plays that are going on, yeah, and three different styles of meter. Of speech, yeah, yeah. They're so, all speaking differently because yeah. some are prose, some are rhyming iambic pentameter, and some are iambic tetrameter. Yeah, but blah, it's, blah, it's, blah. it's mostly tetrameter. I want to double check how Oberon and Titania speak because I think it's even different than. I think those two are Puck also prose, but I could be wrong. Oh, which would make them even more interesting to play as just a different side of uh, E.G. or of Theseus and Hippolyta. Yeah. If they're speaking in the same, ooh, I like that, and I feel like I need to go back and revisit. Well, some some of my favorite interpretations of the play involve the same actors playing Theseus, yeah, and Oberon and Hippolyta and Titania, because they're never those characters are never on stage together. But if you're looking at people who are moving worlds, oh no, uh, those are those are two sets of characters that move very different worlds, and I think that's a really interesting. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't mean they're unimportant. It just they're. Oh no, I don't. I don't think they're unimportant at all. Yeah, I just think that you've got a king and queen and king and queen. I mean, we call them a duke and going to be a duchess. She's a queen right now, but got a king and queen. But they're they're never on stage together. Oberon and Titania and Theseus and Hippolyta never share the stage. Which is why, more often than not, when casting the play, Oberon and Theseus are cast together, and Hippolyta and Titania are cast together. And I think that lends to the dreamlike quality of production. Well, yeah, oh, definitely. Because then you kind of, as an audience member, you do start to question, well, was it real the whole time, or was this... Okay, one of my favorite productions (laughs) of this play was done in the park, in a park, and uh, you never saw Theseus, you never saw Hippolyta, you never saw Oberon, you never saw Titania on stage. Interesting. All of their lines were delivered through spoken, you heard them over the speaker system of... That's an interesting choice. Especially since they are directed... And they were all played by, the like, Theseus and Oberon were the same actor. Mm-hmm. And Hippolyta and Titania were the same actor. Interesting. This was also the one that I saw where Puck was... Multiple people. Multiple actors, but one, one voice. Yeah. So they did a lot of voiceover work for it. That's really kind of neat. Yeah. No, it was great, and it worked really well for this particular play, because... Who gives a shit who Theseus and Oberon and Hippolyta and Titania are? You don't need to see those actors. The actors are unimportant. Their lines, they have some importance. But they're also the least important lines in the entire play. Yeah. They're actually the least important characters in the entire play. No, they just... Begin and end it. So you've got. I like that it starts. You start with a court scene, and you end. With and a you court end scene. with a court scene. And but the the so court is the, unimportant. They are. 
Well, and then there's the court scene kind of in the middle of Oberon and Titania, but you've got, and I, I will give you that as far as the actual plot of the, the play, they are unimportant in that, other than that they kick the ball rolling and then they stop the ball from going. Yeah, they, they, they themselves are unimportant. What is important is the lovers and the mechanicals right. and the fae in between. So this... The tie everything together. Yeah. And actually, basically it means that the lovers, Puck, and the mechanicals, those are your important movers in the play. And those are the people we talk about most. And those are the people that everybody cares about anyway. Because yeah. everybody loves Puck. Nobody cares about Oberon and Titania. Except the beer. Well, the beer Oberon, yes. Yeah. But nobody, nobody cares about them. They care about Titania because she's in the scene where Bottom has his head turned into an ass. Titania is secondary to well, Bottom in that scene. And Bottom is only... That part of Bottom's story is also negligible. It's, it's secondary to Bottom has, as the performer, Pyramus. It doesn't have anything to do with Bottom, Bottom's growth as a character, which he doesn't really have any. No, but he does. He does have growth. Does he gain humility? Yes. Because he still wants to tell his story on stage as a one-man well, act at the end of it. He wants... Okay, up through, but then the performance happens. But no, because in the middle of the performance, he literally stops performing to address the Duke because he overhears a comment that's made and he has to correct it. But he still does... He still does grow. I think that he can be an interesting character without a lot of character growth. Nick Bottom is just Nick Bottom. He's no, I, I believe that I believe that own. he grows before the end of the play. I agree that he doesn't grow until like the last moments of the play. But it's all about how it's, it's all about how Thisbe is played determines. I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's growth in the script on the page for him, I think it can easily be directed in. I think it's an actor actor choice, director choice. Yeah. But I, bottom bottom is not static, and it, he's terrible if he is. You've done a bad job of portraying bottom if he's static from one end of the play to the other. Well, the same can be said for any character period in literature history. No. Like, everybody some characters, has some sort of, like, oh, I've learned something from the, th- the events that have affected some, me. Some characters are static. Richard III is static. I don't know. I would love I to think, play Richard III. I think he learns quite a bit. I'd love to play Richard III, but he's static. He tennis. does not... Uh-huh. learns about tennis. <laughs> that's, that's Henry V. That's Henry V. Oh, damn it. Uh, he learns how... <laughs> no, Richard III, though, is static throughout. He is the same asshole at the beginning of the but play that he is at the end. I, I feel like with the histories, you don't have as much... But Beth was saying because... literature character in general, she generalized... And, and when we get to Richard III, I will take a very close look at what sort of... Because I have... Not really ever gone into the actual words of the play. Well, no, Ricky I, Three though. Ricky Three. Sure, I mean, it's a great play. I'm pretty and sure Richard the Third. I have read like the William and Mary version, and that. Might be <laughs> but um, before we got off on this tangent, conversation, we get on tangent. I was looking up some language, additional language stuff, because I was curious about Oberon and Titania and the fairies. And it looks like the fairies actually go back and forth between speaking in tetrameter and. 
pentameter. And pentameter. Um, and again, it's very performative. It's when the fairies are very are being very like performative of we are fairies that they slip into the tetrameter. So the opening, how no spirit whither wander you, and over hill, over dale, through brush, through briar, that whole bit. Um, but Oberon and Titania speak in pentameter, and when Puck is talking to Oberon, he speaks in pentameter. So there's another. But only when he's speaking to Oberon. So here's another interesting thing that just popped into my head when we're talking about the performative aspect of supernaturals. Another tetrameter mm-hmm. time in Macbeth. Yeah. When we meet the, yeah, witches, with the witches, everybody we, else yeah. is speaking in iambic pentameter. They are also they are not yeah, in yep. tetrameter. And every once in a while, Oberon also will slip into rhyme. But again, it is being very performative. It's when he's talking to uh, Puck about the plan with Titania. And so it's when he's talking about his love. When, yeah. He goes into, so he goes into rhyme. rhyme verse. So here we can see Shakespeare, and maybe we're putting too much on him. Maybe he was drunk in some places or wrote them at different times and then stapled them together. No, this <laughs> but, this play is the least drunken, I think, of Shakespeare's Yeah, this play. one's very concise. I think, I think most of what he did in this was on it's purpose. deliberate, yeah. So then we've got three different plays with three different verse, three different verse styles. And we've got, or sorry, three different meter styles. But And when, verse styles, depending. Well, two, two different verse styles. But... Three different meter styles, and then as they merge into each other's different plays at different times, they pick up the meter style of yeah. whatever they're slipping into. Oh, that's brilliant! It's so smart. It's so well done. Clearly what? done by Edward Lear. I'm sorry. I just had to poke the bear. My bad. I don't believe that in the least. I just wanted to see Ryan pop a, a vein, and it worked. And I don't even have to look at it. And then that's you like have when you the... pull a pig's tail, and it goes, Kirby Street, Kirby Street. And then you have the Pyramus and Thisbe, which is in just bizarre meter. Well, Pyramus and Thisbe is bizarre. And yes. they should be slipping in between a bunch of different yeah. mashed together things. Yeah. Because they... Asleep, my love, what dead, my love, O Pyramus, arise. Speak, Sleep speak, quite dumb. What the dead fuck? <laughs> dead, my dumb. Edward DeVere? <laughs> Took him a real long time for that to boil over. <laughs> I know. I even yeah, sometimes you gotta I the pot on the stove. I had plenty of time to even be like, I don't believe that at all. It's not in any way what I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, hate I don't you. think there's even a chance. Go, go fuck yourself. Yeah. And then Theseus. you said Edward Devere in some semblance of seriousness. I know you recanted, <laughs> but I don't give a shit. You said it in a semblance of seriousness, and that's just fucking wrong. Continuing with the language thing. Uh, At least I'd believe it more so. (laughs) At the very end. No, no, if you just said Bacon, because Bacon was at least smart, Devere wasn't. Devere was an idiot. Bacon, the father of modern forensics, while he had no time to fucking write Shakespeare, at least... At least he was smart enough to do it. Devere had no such fucking qualification. And it's fucking elitist to believe that a guy couldn't fucking write a fucking play if he was not of the fucking elite class. Shakespeare was fucking educated. So fuck your Devere and fuck anybody who says Devere. And fuck anybody who says Bacon. And fuck anybody who says anybody who Shakespeare wrote his fucking plays. 
I will fight you in the streets. Probably. No, legitimately. If you are listening and you believe that anyone other than William Shakespeare wrote his plays, I will fight you in the streets. I'll give you my phone number. Just all you have to do, send a direct message to the Shakespeare Pod Twitter account. Please don't. <laughs> and I will fight you in the streets. Fisticuffs. If anybody wants to know how Ryan and I have been friends for 18 years, it's this. <laughs> Fisticuffs. So what gets really interesting about the language with these Sorry, at to. the end I, of... Uh... I, Beth did it to piss me off and she did it on purpose. <laughs> the one time I think where Theseus slips out of verse and speaks in prose is when he is talking directly to Bottom, not commenting on things that are happening in the play. But when Bottom goes, we have an epilogue. Would you like to hear it? And Theseus goes, No, nope. no, we don't. Nope, we're done. Nope, I'm good, man. I'm cool, he bro. He goes into prose for that section when he's addressing Bottom, and then immediately goes back into verse to address the lovers and tell them to go to bed and have sex. It's because you need to be as direct as possible when stopping yes. people from going on extenuating tirades. <laughs> <laughs> you started that shit. You did that because you knew I would do that. Don't even, don't even blame me for that. You started that. I didn't blame you for anything. But I love that it's almost like Bottom's like, do you want an epilogue? Because I got this crazy dream that I had last night. And he's we're like good. about to go we're into good. it. And Theseus is like, no. And he Fight does it in first, a very Beth. smart way. He says, uh, no epilogue, I pray you, for your play needs no excuse. Never excuse, for when the players are all dead, there need none to be blamed. Huh. I feel like Shakespeare breaks that rule... All the time in his plays. Like Hamlet. Yeah. I like that, though. Yeah. That That is really interesting. I'm really going to have to take a look now more closely when we start a play to, to pull up how the meter rolls throughout the scene. Sometimes I it's all assume, over the place. And sometimes it's about making each scene work in whichever way yeah. it is, but if you can find a thematic... Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's all sometimes over the place. Sometimes the meter matches the scene. Because it used to be, I used to believe, oh, it's just a hard and fast line between high class and low class when it's first and it's prose. And then I did Lisa Lockford's Shakespeare class in college, and I was studying, I was doing a speech of Portia's as my prose selection. And I was like, okay, well, Portia's, Portia's a highborn lady, and she's speaking in prose. And I had to kind of parse out why is she in prose at that moment, and the conclusion I came to is that's a private moment for her. It's when she's alone in her bedchamber talking about the casks and her duty to her father. And again, it's that performative difference. Yeah, no. And also the only time Oberon and Titania go into Tetrameter is the last scene when he's addressing the fairies. When he's speaking to the fairies. To the fairies. So the class, I think, is something that I would like to talk about in here. Because Mm -hmm. we definitely have different levels of class going on. Definitely. And different levels of power because of class. Yes. And it works very well with this meter that I didn't even notice. Oh, my God. I love you so much. I know. You're so smart. You actually nerded out more on this play than I do, and that was pretty great. She actually nerded out more on this play than Winter's Tale. Yeah, you did. You did. That's because made... this has really interesting language stuff. And no, I love that. no, but it's great. It's great because, like, I have noticed differences in flow in reading this play mm-hmm. and in performing this play, 
But I never went to the point that you did. I never, I never went to the point where I actually looked to see that, oh, oh shit, the fairies all speak in tetrameter and everyone else is in prose or pentameter. Like, I never went to that point myself. I noticed, like, I felt the differences in reading it and performing it, but I never paid enough attention. The reason, and I have a reason for this. Titus and talk about her training. The reason okay, well, is because... When we, when we get to Titus, I'm going to fucking nerd all over all of you, but... Horizon Youth Theater did Midsummer mm-hmm. a few years ago. I think in 2012, so five or six years ago. Yeah. And originally, um, it was supposed to be this big summer educational thing yeah, where it was going to have the performance aspect with the play, but it was also going to have an educational aspect. And so I was running the educational half of it. So I did all of this, like, intense lesson planning with this play, and then that educational half did not happen. It fell through. So I just have all of this, like, knowledge about Midsummer that I've never been able to share. Well, and so now I have. Nice if you had some sort of captive Some audience. kind of outlet where you could get that out and talk about it. Do you feel better? It. Is it really you? Don't She's run. running away. Oh, no. Running away. No. Oh. Um, but no, I mean, it. there's another chart coming out. But oh, seriously, Shakespeare set free. I I spend a lot of time with this play, and I have like <laughs> this was the play <laughs> that I that I first read uh, in the seventh grade. This was the first Shakespeare I ever read, and I've I have read them all, some more than others, <laughs> and this is one that I always come back to. It is not, not my favorite comedy by Billy Shakes. That is, it's not even remotely my favorite comedy. But I will always come back to this play because this play is the, it's the centerpiece of William Shakespeare. Yeah. If I want you you say, let's pretend, let's imagine a world where you have never experienced Shakespeare. Oh, jeez. A world where you have never experienced Shakespeare. You are a new person coming up to me for the first time, be it 16 or 60, and you have never experienced Shakespeare. You know what play I'm going to recommend to you? You go to this one. This one. You go to this one. You do. Guaranteed, 100% of the time, I say, you're going to want this one. This You was, want the dream. This was the first Shakespeare that I remember seeing performed. I don't know if it was the first Shakespeare I saw performed, but it's the first one I remember. And it was when I was in middle school. They did it at OSU Mansfield Branch. My dad okay. was in it. He played Aegeus. And they did it outside. So they had a little spot on campus that was against this wooded area. And then there was a grassy area right in front of the woods that had an incline down into a building. And they set up chairs. Like um, a a kind of natural amphitheater? Kind of. But the audience was at the bottom and then the players were up on the hill. And so when people were making their exits, they were actually going into the woods and they had fun. they had a quote unquote green room tent set up like half a mile back in the woods. 
because the actors had to get that far away before you couldn't see them anymore. That's fun. And so it was so ethereal and so such an, an incredible just visual experience well, to watch this, people flitting in and out of the actual trees. This is the best play. If you're going to do Shakespeare in the park, there is no better play to do in the park. Almost all of it takes place outside. Yeah. The first, well, and for me, this is the first Shakespeare that I saw in person. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's safe for me. When I saw this, I was... I don't know, 10 or 11, 12 years old. I had never read Shakespeare at that point. I had no knowledge of Shakespeare at that point. And I saw this play performed in a park that I had been in before because of running uh, like cross-country meets and things. It was Hedges Boyer Park down in Tiffin. And it was a touring company. And this was the one where you never saw Oberon or Titania. You never saw Theseus or Hippolyta. And there was, like, I swear to God, 70 pucks. One puck spoke the lines, but right. but you could look behind this tree and see puck. And you could immediately turn your head and look behind that tree and see puck. And puck's head is coming out one end of the stage and puck's feet are coming out one, the other end of the mm -hmm. stage. And it so enchanted me. Like, the idea that it was possible to put on a play that was 500 fucking years old. And, I mean, I was 10 or 11 or 12. I... The these and thous and things like mm -hmm. that. That. But I knew exactly what was happening because it was so enchanted by the work. Yeah. I think it's easy to follow. And I think it's the most adaptable. Oh, it is. Yeah. And I, But I was so enchanted by the words and how they were performed and how ex accessible it was. Considering I was a like 11-year-old kid. Yeah. I had no prior experience with Billy Shakes at that point, but it was the th it, that performance sparked a a lifelong love in me for Shakespeare. I saw that, and since then, like I, the first thing I did when we got home, like. Like, the next day after we were home from that performance is I rode my bike over to the closest library, which was, like, five miles away. Uphill. Both ways. Not uphill. Not both <laughs> I mean, there was a slight uphill. Did both brothers but, on the back? No. But I rode my bike to, like, the closest library that was, like, five miles away, and I took out the complete works of William Shakespeare. And I read... Every fucking play in that fucking thing. And most of them, I had no idea what the fuck I was reading. I was going to say, I don't think I read actual Shakespeare words until junior high. No, but this was, I mean, 10, 11, 12, I was like getting, getting into junior high. It was pretty close. I mean, it was like 6th grade, 7th grade, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was a while ago. I mean, it was fucking 20-some years ago at this point. But it, it sparked such a love of 
Shakespeare for me that I went and like the first fucking chance I got, I got the fucking complete works and I was like, I don't know any of this shit, but I'm going to read it. Yeah. Well, I love it. I've seen And I I made my junior high, my seventh grade language arts teacher, because it wasn't even English, it was language arts. Mm-hmm. I made her, I was like, I was like, we gotta cover this shit. <laughs> this is like, this is like the shit. Like, this is, and so like we did Midsummer Night's Dream. We read it in my seventh grade English class. Because I was like, I, I wouldn't quit bugging my teacher until we did. Because, I mean, like, this is the play that's... Like, it's not my favorite Shakespeare. It's not my favorite comedy of but Shakespeare's. It's your entry point. But it was the play that made me love Shakespeare. Yeah, and so I think it can be a really solid entry point for a lot of people. And I've and seen, I mean, I love some parts of it. Don't yeah, I've, I've seen two professional performances of it. I've seen it in Stratford, Ontario, up in Canada, twice. The first production that I saw, they set it in the modern-day rainforest and actually partnered with Cirque du Soleil. And so all of the fairies were acrobats oh, cool. on aerial silks and... So it's like doing, Fern Gully. <laughs> kind of. Um, and it, But it was really, really impressive. So you had all of the mortals on the ground and then all of the fairies' actions pretty much was up in the air. Oh, that's so above cool, them. It was really, really neat. That's so cool. And then the second time that I saw it, they set it in the 1950s. And I remember really clearly reading this director's note and he was saying, you know, we wanted to play with when this was set and we wanted to play with the idea of what the fairies are. We didn't want to make them the same way that the fairies are always done in this play. So instead, they looked at the time period of the 1950s, and they said, what do the fairies really represent? They really represent what is other, what is separate and different, and not understood. And so they made all the par- all the fairies, like, rock and roll, punk, dyed hair, spikes. Uh, they carried, like, boomboxes around. Oh, that's fun. It was really fun. And that was also really cool. And they performed that in the festival theater up in Stratford which has a standard, like the stage is partially a thrust stage, so it's a hexagonal shape, and you've got the audience on some sides of it, so it's not so like it's a, a, it's full a partial thrust, thrust, but it's a partial thrust. And then they've got this balcony that kind of comes out that's just part of the structure of the stage. They recreated that balcony so that if you had seen other shows performed there, you would go in and think, oh, it's just the usual structure and then when they swapped over to where the fairies came out the whole front of it broke off and came crashing down to the stage floor it was built to do it um but came crashing down to the stage floor and like broke the the floor beneath and made it jagged and come up and then the fairies were climbing all over the broken stage piece and then when they went back for the wedding at the very end that lifted back into place it was the coolest that's, no, that's I super cool flipped my shit at like the age of 19 years old, freshman in college, just getting into the kind of digging deep in the theater scene, I sat there while that happened and like gripped the shoulders of whoever was sitting next to me. It was my family, but like, it's just like, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. It was so neat. Well, like I said, this, this play, it, it speaks to any theater go. Mm-hmm. Well, 
not only does it give you a backstage look at what's going on. And what, you know, well, yeah, because you get the mechanicals and you get what it, what they're what they're going through backstage. But you also get just a really nice light love story. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's with a the light. Threat, with the threat of death, but still a, nice, but it's a, a it's minor st- threat of it death. It is still a light what's, comedic what's a love, love story? story. What's a comedic love story without the threat of death? But it is, in general, a light comedic love story. But there's so much to it with the mechanicals and mm. with the fairies. That there's more depth than if you were to say, oh, it's just, ah, it's a love story. There's more depth than that, and there's more meat. I've seen really fun, nice productions that are done just traditionally in in, uh, Athenian garb. It's just it's just putting on Midsummer Night's Dream, and I've seen. Well, and you, but you can with this play, you can you can just put on. Right, and I've seen some really interesting adaptations where, um, like like you said, there's punk rock. That sounds really interesting. I've seen one where it was done. Everybody had umbrellas. It was a royal. BB, it was a royal um, Shakespeare company. R- an RSC. Version. Yeah, and I remember. I Not got, the reduced, but the royal. This is the kind of nerd I am. For Christmas one year, I got the complete Royal Shakespeare Company's like thirty-six volume VHS. BBC VHS. VHS. It was huge. That's a that's the kind of nerd I am. A VHS, by the way, was a video cassette. They don't know. They don't know what cassette is either. But it had a tape on the inside. They don't know what a tape is. It was done with magnets. (laughs) There were magnets, and the play. The video was recorded on a piece of, like, cellophane. It looked like there were tiny people on my TV. I'm just going to put it that way. <sighs> For all those that don't know what a VHS is... It's, um... It's magic. We'll just go with that. Yeah. It's uh, magic. It's, it's more magical than a DVD. 72p. 70... 720p. But, no, not even. Not even. Not no, even. No, that's 72p. It was, it was, it was yeah, it was, it was 480. 480p. But, um, but it was seeing like it would be, these umbrellas. All of the fairies had these bright yellow umbrellas, and it would like instead of wings, they would carry them to lift them up and things like that. It was really interesting. So I've seen really interesting things done with this. My mom wanted me to mention the production that she saw where all the fairies were puppets. That's interesting. I um, didn't see that production, but she saw that production and my, she my wanted dream. me to mention. Well, I mean, you could easily do it with all puppets. Yeah. I mean, all fairies, as in puck. Yeah. Titania, Oberon, all yeah, of them? They were, they were all puppets. Okay, that I don't know about. Like, because... Or at least, is, I, don't, I don't know, because I didn't see this production. Puck, but Puck needs to be more animated than a puppet. Ah, puppets can get pretty animated. Okay, well, are, you talking mum, are you talking Muppets or puppets? No, like marionettes. Yeah, okay, then no. Puck cannot be a marionette. That's not animated enough. My my dream way of doing it is as a parlor comedy where we've got the fairies are all the under or below stairs. Oh, that's really interesting. No, as a parlor comedy, I think it works. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. Well, it, then it's just... There's like noises off, but, you know. There, there's a little lasciviousness going on there under the stairs. It's not normal, but I'm sure they all had to bone someone, so why not? But that's, no, I, that's I, my as, a, as a parlor comedy, Be, I, I think it works. Because I'm very interested in how class works in this play. Right. Because and class it's is important. There. It's, you know, it's definitely... You have the high class, you have the lower class with the mechanicals, and then you have... You and know, I think it's interesting, class. I think it's interesting to look at this, the wedding reception scene with Pyramus and Thisbe, and to look at how 
the lovers are interacting with the mechanicals as they perform because they're laughing at them. They come in expecting this to be completely ridiculous, and it is. And they're making these comments, like, while the performance is going on, like, making fun of the performances and the, the way costumes that, yeah. and the way that it's staged. And there, you can do that as kind of mean-spirited, but you can also do it as all in good. Playful. Good fun. Yeah. And I, I love the exchange with Snug. I love Snug. I think he's just delightful. We know you love Snug. You're married, married to him. I'm married Snug. No but, but, you know, when he... The, and so, especially in the 1998 movie version, that's Oh, no, is that actor is delightful. delightful. Yeah, he's very... And he's so earnest, and he loves his part as the lion, and he's so into it that when they're making their comments after his performance... It can't be mean-spirited because... He's too sweet. He's too well, sweet. They, like, they, they, well-roared lion, like... There's no way they want to hurt his feelings. Exactly. Because of how earnest he is in yeah. the role. That, like, they can't hurt his feelings. But there is definitely that class divide because they're, they are... Op- the lovers are operating at a level of wit that is above what the mechanicals understand. Absolutely. Which is why you get... Nick Bottom They're, interrupting his performance to correct the his Duke. Performance, yeah. Even though what the Duke said was completely in jest. Um, but Bottom doesn't understand. He, yeah, he doesn't understand that. Um, but I, I, yeah, language is the most important part of this play. Especially how it interchanges between you have the three classes, you have your ruling class, you have your Theseus and Hippolyta. That last bit that I needed to kind of click how I want to do this play as a parlor comedy, you really helped screw that in with, like, blowing my mind with how the language works. Because it really does set a difference between uh, the valet, like, oh, Puck will be the valet. But Snug, but yeah, Snug really, I think, fixes for me just the irritatingness of Bottom's suggestion back in Act 2 of we have to add all these prologues so that we don't frighten the ladies. Yep. But by giving Snug that speech, he's so earnest and so, like, good-hearted that it's like, oh, that's really sweet. It becomes sweet and not, like, the, yes, so, yes, Snug's prologue is not... If delivered earnestly, it's not... Now, I I love all the prologues and the mechanicals in here because it's poking fun at some of the things Shakespeare had to do to not be arrested yes. for witchcraft. Yes. So, well, because sometimes he had to put a prologue in that was like... This is all uh, acting. This is acting and not like we are not actually witches. Well... They had to do things, like, I remember when we went to the Globe in -hmm. London, them talking about how they would have to, you couldn't try to hide the ropes if you were lifting someone up. You would have to make them, like, golden. You had to make them visible. Everybody could see how you were doing it. Otherwise you were witches. so So that you aren't seen as magic, so nobody could think that you were... Doing things against the church. They were going to burn church. you at the stake. Exactly, yeah. and we laugh at it and giggle at it, but at the that's very much the world they had to work in was this very limited understanding of how you could make engineering work. 
And I think that, that this play is helpful then on another kind of meta level when you're using it as an introduction to Shakespeare for younger people or for inexperienced people today because the mechanicals do address so much of how theater worked in Shakespeare's day that it's yep. a lesson within the play itself. Even yeah. Pyramus so, like, and Thisbe, when you're talking about a man playing... Having a man playing the role, but also when Peter Quince is saying, no, you, you're speaking all your part at once, that leads to the discussion of you didn't get the whole script, you just got your lines and you had to know when other people... Yep. And yes. so it just, it's a No, yeah, the mechanicals lesson. themselves really, really teach... An audience. Yeah. Well, like I said, and like I said, this was my introduction to Shakespeare. And I am sure that it was a lot of other people's introduction oh, yeah. to Shakespeare. And it was mine. When I think about how I'm going to introduce my children to Shakespeare, they're going to love the fairies. The this fairies is it's one of the best, fun. it's one of the best plays. If you want to teach someone about Shakespeare, this is the play. And this is always a fun way to get kids involved. Oh, in yeah. Because I've seen well, you can do tons the of productions for the fairies with children. Yeah. Tons. Yes. I think I've seen this play like eight times. And now I think it's we can probably times. continue on this course. We're saying, yeah, but we're saying the same things over and like over again. Like 17 hours, I, we could talk about this play. Yeah. So, but I think we are. We've up. covered up. The, the one much. other thing I think I want to briefly touch on. Okay. Is in all the whimsy and magical and nostalgia of this, one thing that stuck out to me as I was reading this time that hasn't really occurred to me before is, wait a minute, Oberon's a dick and he wins. Yep. He's a dick and he wins. He wins in this play. Yes. He gets exactly what he wants. He and he's an asshole. To Tanya, out of the thing, he leads Demetrius into this life where he's forever under a love spell. Like and we know how all but, that goes. But I'm gonna magical dicks always do this in Shakespeare. Prospero is kind of a dick. Yeah. Oh, Prospero's an asshole, but and he's he delightful. Wins. Yeah. So when we see these magical wins, what did he lose? His daughter. Uh, the solitude. Yeah. He gave it up. Trust me, it. we we can argue this. <laughs> okay, but either way. There oftentimes these strong magical male figures win and are complete it. Yeah. Well, it's because of the way Shakespeare writes them. Yeah. Maybe because he believes that supernatural creatures are going to be selfish by nature and likely to make things happen the way they want them to. Yeah. And I guess I just kind of my assumption is always that Oberon and Titania as fairies are operating on a level above what we understand, and they're immortals, so he won this round, but I'm sure that... She'll win the next one. She'll win the next yes, one. Yes, and, and I'm sure it goes back and gonna, forth. And yep. most productions I've seen, they are together. They're together with the Changeling Boy at the So, end. yes, he won, but she still gets the Changeling Boy. It, and I believe at some point she said, if you want him in, like, your yeah. retinue, just come, just come to my retinue. Like, just come yeah. to me. Yeah. If you are with me, you can yeah. have him. But he doesn't want to do that because he wants them all to himself. Well, yes. Because he's a dick. But, but um, I think... there are... Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I thought about this because in preparing for today, I did watch... A literary inspired web series based on. Excellent. Oh, I gotta share. I gotta share. Literary, literary web series. Literary web series. Oh, it's time for literary web series. I have, I, have, I, have, I have a comic book adaptation when you're done. Okay. 
There are four literary web series adaptations of this. However, only one of them is good. Um, the other three, one of them isn't finished. It like kind of stalled out after three episodes. Uh, one of them is Helena as the main vlogger, and I couldn't. I tried, and I couldn't. One of them is literally just the play, but they set it at a frat house, and they filmed it in episodes. So okay. that wasn't great. But the one that was like a really solid adaptation um, is by Can- the Candle Wasters, who are the same people who did uh, Nothing Much to Do, which was the Much to Do About Nothing oh, adaptation from New Zealand. Uh-huh. It's, yeah. called, it's yeah. called Bright Summer Nights, and it's a 10-episode uh, series of One Night at This Party, and it is a modernization, and it is... Um, very, there's a lot of drugs. People do a lot of drugs at this party. And well, to which, be able to which is, this a, play. is a, a pretty good analogy. Um, and, and the way that they kind of take the, the fairy. Take the magic out? The, yeah, take the magic out, but still leave that element there is really interesting. And, uh, so it's called Bright Summer Night. And in this one, Oberon. I don't remember what his name actually is in the thing, but... Um, the representation of Oberon. The representation of Oberon is a dick and doesn't win at the end. He ends the party, like, completely alone. He's been a dick to all his friends, so they've all abandoned him, basically. Um, he tricks Titania into doing drugs, and she gets super mad at him and refuses to interact with him. And he's just kind of this sad, alone figure by the end of, of the web series. Which Good, because, I mean, you shouldn't roofie your... You should not roofie your date. Or the, the people that well, you're trying I mean, to... Well, I mean, in or, Oberon's case, or, you're estranged to wife, but yes, you really shouldn't roofie anyone. Should, you shouldn't yeah. roofie people. Let yeah, that's just, I mean, like, we'll put it on a pen. Yeah. Don't roofie people. No, don't you don't even need to. Don't roofie people. It's like, don't kill people, don't rape people, don't roofie people. Yeah. That's yeah, I mean, it's just, it's scientific fact. Yeah, but just so that's... don't roofie people. That's the literary web series scene on this. Um... I and want, there aren't a lot of YA adaptations. So there's a couple of fun... Um, a lot of film adaptations. Yeah. Obviously, adaptations. obviously, we talked about the 98 uh, with Callista Flockhart and Christian Bale and all of them. Bale? Kevin Klein. Christian Bale? Christian Bale. Christian Bale. Christian Bale. <laughs> Christian Bale. Uh, that's, you say Christian Bale and Christian Bale quickly enough? They sound the same. Christian Bale. <laughs> Christian Bale. Never mind. I don't, I don't think either way. I would say so. There are a couple. So. There, there are a couple of um, comic books that I think need a shout out. Okay. So the Fables series mm. has it running through there as well. But I have to give a shout out to Neil Gaiman um, and his Sandman series. There is um, Midsummer Night in there, in which yes, okay. in, in which mm-hmm. um, the I forgot about that. In which the court comes out of the hill and interacts. I think it's a, it's in it's one of the stories in World's End. Yeah. And it yeah. is but first of all, if you haven't read Sandman, read Do yourself it. a favor. Do yourself a favor. I know it's a comic book and maybe you're not into that, but if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. You're you're a fucking nerd, so um, just do it. But if you haven't read Sandman, you don't have to read the whole series to just pick up World's End. It is four stories that are told in the Sandman world, and one of them is Midsummer Night, and it is great. Is um, yeah, there's not a lot of YA adaptations. Um, there are some that call themselves adaptations, but they're not, and that irritates me. Um, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, 
And I know that Mercedes Lackey has a series, I believe, and the first one is called Ill Met by Moonlight. And it is about Oberon and Titania Mm -hmm. and how they interact. It's specifically about Oberon and Titania trying to make sure that Elizabeth gets put on the throne. Realistically, Mercedes Lackey has an adaptation of, of everything. everything. Yes. So I feel like, hmm, has anybody adapted Rapunzel lately? Yeah, no, I bet Mercedes Lackey has. There's yes. Probably... But she has she has this um, historical fantasy that is basically the fairies trying to ensure that England's throne gets into their correct hands. They need to get Henry VIII out of there. And they're trying to get Elizabeth on the throne. Well, the succession that happened throughout that, like, 20... How long was Mary on the throne? Like, 12 years? years. Five years? Five years. It's much shorter than I thought. Yeah. She was not on the throne very long. The things that happened in the middle of that were super super weird. It's 11 days of Lady Jane Grey, who never wanted to be queen to begin with. Nope. And then Mary dies of a weird tumor that she thinks is a baby. That's strange, too. Yeah. Like, there's all sorts of weird stuff. So I believe, yeah. Mary, yeah. I think fairy, were, Fairies in the woods. Isn't that yeah. what we're blaming everything on? Yeah, yeah. sure. Fairies sure. in the woods. Yeah, that's what I'm at. And I think at that point points. is, are we... I think we're pretty good. I think we're pretty good. I think those are the adaptations that I know thanks about. Thanks, everybody, for listening again. Yeah, yeah, thanks for listening. And I think then I've got one thing to close this out, but I think we should exit uh, as per usual first. All Goodbye, right. parents. I'm I'm not going anywhere by a bear. It's not a bear, it's a lion. Oh. Uh, roar. Roar. <laughs> That's me. Well, I'm Beth Roars. <laughs> <don't know>. <laughs> yep, that happened. Uh, I think that Cassie was giggling. I'm Cassie Greenley. Thank you. I'm Chase Greenley. And I am Ryan Hathill. And uh, we'll leave you with this. If we shadows have offended, think but this... And all is mended. That you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck, now to escape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. Else the puck a liar called. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. What, Mom? So good night, John boy. Good night, John boy. Good night, John boy. <laughs>